Origins was originally intended to only be a three-part series, but we have decided to extend the show as new information on the origins of SARS-CoV-2 has come to light. If you are one of the thousands of people who have enjoyed this series, please consider giving us a small monetary donation to support our work. We have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash double asterisk media, as well as a Cash App account at DA Media 2021. That's dollar sign, capital D, capital A, Media 2021. Also, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and share and suggest it to friends who you think would find it interesting. Thank you for listening. Until 48 hours before we finished the whole mission, we still had no agreement that we would talk about the laboratory part of the report. So it was not until the very end that it was discussed whether it should be included or not. We did not get to look at records or documents directly from the laboratory. We got a presentation, and then we talked and asked the questions we wanted to ask, but we did not get to look at any documentation at all. In the beginning, they did not want anything about a lab leak in our report, because they insisted it was impossible, and therefore we should not waste time on it. I said, listen now, we must include this, otherwise we have no report. It will not be approved or accepted as a sensible, credible report. But I was told that, for them, it is difficult to accept any discussion about a lab leak. Eventually, however, we came to an agreement whereby we could mention the lab leak hypothesis if it was categorized as extremely unlikely. This is probably because a lab leak means that there has been human error, and they are not very happy to admit it. Maybe it's partly the traditional Asian feeling that you should not lose face, or it could also be that someone wants to hide something. Who knows? These are the roughly translated words of Danish scientist and World Health Organization program manager, Dr. Peter Ben Emberic, spoken to documentary filmmakers for a film that was released on Denmark's TV2. Dr. Emberic, the lead scientist on the WHO's February 2021 fact-finding mission in Wuhan, looking into the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, had famously concluded his report by telling the world that a lab leak origin of the pandemic was, quote, extremely unlikely, and that it, quote, didn't warrant further investigation. Six months later, Dr. Emberic was on Danish television telling the world that these statements were a heavily crafted compromise with the Chinese members of that WHO fact-finding group. What he actually thought, according to this interview, was that a lab leak origin of the pandemic was entirely possible and would require an entirely different type of investigation in which, quote, one would check safety logs, laboratory logs, research plans, and sample collections one in which all employees are interviewed separately. In China, the city of Wuhan is still on lockdown, with Americans trapped inside as the number of worldwide cases in Italy has surged 
by 919 in a single day. That is more than Duke scientist Tulio de Oliveira discovered the new variant after observing a dramatic acting as an accelerant to conspiracy theories. The digital era we live in came as the United States recorded more than 2,400 deaths in just that has been reported from Brazil. And the third has come as the more contagious variant of COVID-19 number of deaths recorded from COVID in the UK has passed on China show it likely play a role in the development of China study into the origins of COVID-19 uh, they've concluded that it's unlikely it came from a Wuhan lab I'm John Duffy and this is Origins Birth of a Pandemic Part 4 The WHO wanted to investigate the labs in Wuhan Beijing has refused to give access or to cooperate or to offer raw data. Now, WHO scientists who went to Wuhan are speaking out. One of the investigators has now revealed how Chinese officials pressured the team to drop the lab leak hypothesis. On July 15th, 2021, the WHO suggested further research into the pandemic's origins in Wuhan that would include audits of Chinese labs. The WHO Director General, Tedros Ghebreyesus suggested it was premature to rule out the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 escaped from a lab. And he went on to say that the WHO needed, quote, China to be transparent, open, and to cooperate, especially on the information, raw data that we asked for in the early days of the pandemic. A flat-out rejection from Beijing. Authorities in China ruled out a WHO plan to examine if COVID-19 leaked from a lab, suggesting the theory itself is flawed. Last week, the WHO director admitted the fact-finding mission earlier this year fell short of expectations. There was a premature push to reduce one of the options, like the lab theory. China's deputy head of their National Health Commission, Zheng Yixing, rebuffed the idea, saying, quote, In some aspects, the WHO's plan for the next phase of investigation of the coronavirus origin doesn't respect common sense, and it's against science. It's impossible for us to accept such a plan. The reason why the investigation of the WHO didn't go very far is because basically every virologist has a conflict of interest. This is Dr. Jonathan Latham again. And they've also been protected by journal editors, heads of the scientific associations, by various luminaries who have participated in virology. There's a close-knit group of people who really have a very intense conflict of interest. To get a greater understanding of how academic journals and those well-connected in the world of virology steered the rest of the world away from considering the possibility of a lab leak origin for the pandemic, I reached out to Paul Thacker, an investigative reporter who now runs the Disinformation Chronicle. Paul previously ran investigations for the United States Senate, looking into corruption in science and medicine, where he reformed conflict of interest problems at the National Institutes of Health. He has also authored multiple articles for the British Medical Journal concerning how the lab leak hypothesis was treated by academics and the media. I started off by asking Paul how he became interested in the lab leak story. I ran across a couple of different stories that either stated or implied that if you 
said that the virus could have come out of a lab, well, then you're a conspiracy theorist. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, this is September of last of 2020. And I was like, well, that's weird. Like, it could have come from a lab. I don't know. Like, I, I hadn't read anything about it. And so I would go and just, like, I posted a couple, you know, stories about this on Facebook and got these immediate negative responses from science writers. Now, so, like, I'm in this kind of world where a lot of my friends, like, work at, you know, these, you know, big magazines and science journals and stuff. And I would get these kind of snarky responses from these people. And that really, like, disturbed me. That got me interested in looking into the, the issue even more. And then I started reading the emails that came out from U.S. Right to Know, which exposed the entire orchestrated fashion by which Peter Daszak had placed that commentary in The Lancet to divert attention from the fact that the pandemic could have started from a lab leak. That statement set it was one of the many issues that helped to set the tone that if you said it came from a lab, that you're a conspiracy theorist. The statement in the Lancet Journal that Paul is referring to was published on March 7, 2020. It was titled, Statement in Support of the Scientists, Public Health Professionals, and Medical Professionals of China Combating COVID-19. Gilles Demenouf mentioned it in part one of this series, saying it sent his own hackles up when it didn't look like science. Now at the time, I didn't understand who Peter Daszak was or what EcoHealth Alliance was. You know, I started piecing it together. I was like, well, who is this guy? You know, what does he do? Where does his money come from? I ran a long question and answer for the Disinformation Chronicle with Alina Chan. And she was the one who explained this to me initially. And honestly, I didn't believe her, like some of the details she was explaining to me about what the Lancet had done. For instance, that they hid the financial ties between some of the signatories and EcoHealth Alliance. In fact, according to the Telegraph, all but one scientist who signed on to the Lancet statement was in some way linked to the lab in Wuhan, its Chinese researchers, their colleagues, or their funders. And what they had done, instead of saying like one individual was like the vice president of whatever at EcoHealth Alliance, they had used his academic affiliation instead. And the reason why it's important to understand this is because Peter Daszak and EcoHealth Alliance obviously have a financial conflict of interest in dissuading people from looking at the lab because that lab <laughs> is funded by Peter Daszak. <laughs> and so of course he doesn't want people to think that there's a problem at the very lab that he is funding. It then came out in November that Peter Daszak had orchestrated that statement, right? That came out in the emails. This was then broadly ignored by the science writing community. I was working on a piece for the BMJ and I contacted Richard Horton, who's the editor in chief of The Lancet, asking about this. He never responded to our request from the BMJ, but they did then make changes to the conflict of interest statements of the people who signed that letter. And Peter Daszak's conflict of interest statement now is about as long as a Russian novel. While there were researchers who noted the impropriety of Peter Daszak and multiple other individuals with ties to the EcoHealth Alliance, and thus the Wuhan Institute of Virology, signing on to the Lancet Statement in March of 2020, the issue was mostly ignored 
until June of 2021, when Freedom of Information Act requests for Dr. Anthony Fauci's emails from early in the pandemic began being supplied to BuzzFeed, CNN, and The Washington Post. And now the focus on Dr. Anthony Fauci's view on where the virus started. That's after several news organizations obtained thousands of pages of Fauci's emails under the Freedom of Information Act from the first months of 2020, including one sent by Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the NIH. Its subject line, conspiracy gains momentum, linking to a story on a Fox News report suggesting COVID-19 leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Fauci's response, blacked out. What these emails show is another group of scientists who are basically conversing with each other about the possibility of a lab leak, who in public are saying that a lab leak is a ridiculous and a conspiracy theory, and in private are discussing the pros and cons of zoonosis and lab leaks. You know, they are, in a sense, politicizing the lab leak. You know, they're calling it a conspiracy. They're failing to look into it. They're acting as gatekeepers in their editorial positions. So essentially, scientists attempting to skew the debate in the full knowledge that the lab origin is actually a possibility. After newly released emails linked to Dr. Anthony Fauci, among the many revelations, his correspondence with a key figure linked to the Wuhan lab. Reports showing that a lead researcher, Peter Dazak is his name, personally thanked Fauci for downplaying the COVID lab leak theory early on. If one lines up the emails received as part of FOIA requests by media organizations, as well as watchdog groups like U.S. Right to Know, and even admissions made by insiders like Jeremy Farrar of the UK's Wellcome Trust, who wrote about the first days of the pandemic in his book, Spike, a timeline of activity amongst virologists and powerful actors in public health emerges. In August of 2021, journalist Nicholas Wade wrote an excellent article titled How COVID-19's Origins Were Obscured by the East and the West. In this article, Wade assembled this timeline, and he notes that the media's perception of COVID's origins were shaped for more than a year primarily by two entries in scientific journals. One was the Lancet statement, spearheaded by Peter Dajak, and the other was an analysis published in Nature Medicine on March 17, 2020, titled The Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2 by Christian Anderson et al. There's a couple different problems with that, that paper when it came out. Again, it was one of the major pieces right after the Lancet, which set up the idea that, aha, it couldn't have actually, you know, come from a lab. Now, if you look at it in reality, what it actually said was there is no evidence to date that this virus was genetically engineered. That's what it actually said when you read the paper. And then what they did was they used a false dilemma, right, in the paper. They said, okay, this either came through spillover from bats or it was genetically engineered We've looked at the sequence. It's not genetically engineered. Ergo, aha, it must be natural spillover. That's a false dilemma. Another idea could be that, well, they didn't genetically engineer it, but they were studying it in a lab and it got out. When they published the Anderson paper, if you look at the criteria for the publication of a correspondence article in Nature Medicine, it has word limits and it has page limits and it has figure limits. And every one of them, except the figure number limit, 
was exceeded by that paper. So people who are wanting to dismiss a lab origin are being given carte blanche by this journal. A scientific journal is putting its foot on the balance sheet, if you like, by basically allowing lengthy discussions to downplay the possibility of a lab origin. What's interesting about the lead author of the Proximal Origins paper, Christian Anderson, is that he at first believed that SARS-CoV-2 could in fact be the product of laboratory experimentation. He says so in an email he wrote to Dr. Anthony Fauci on January 31, 2020. In a message sent at 10.32 p.m., Anderson writes, quote, on a phylogenetic tree, the virus looks totally normal and the close clustering with bats suggests that bats serve as the reservoir. The unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome, less than 0.1%, so one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features potentially look engineered. In the next paragraph, Anderson continues, quote, After discussions earlier today, Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. Anderson then admits they need to take a closer look and that their opinions could change. The Eddie that Anderson mentions is Eddie Holmes, a virologist from Australia. Edward Holmes gets into the same problem about lack of disclosure. Edward Holmes, when he signed all of his studies, will say that he's a academic at a university in Sydney, Australia. What he won't tell you is, is that he's also been a visiting academic at the CDC in Beijing, China. Jeremy Farrar, president of the UK's Wellcome Trust, which is a medical research charity responsible for a lot of scientific financing, heard from Eddie Holmes about these discussions amongst virologists, suggesting the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 was engineered. Farrar then arranged a teleconference for later that day. So these virologists could speak with himself, with Dr. Fauci, and with other esteemed virologists and global public health leadership about their concerns. I can't remember who exactly it was involved. There's Jeremy Farrar, who runs the Wellcome Trust, which is a huge funder for the UK. Uh, Anthony Fauci was on that phone call. Anderson was on that phone call. Edward Holmes was on that phone call. There's been a couple of different narratives of what came out of those discussions, but we don't know it's a black hole because the NIH will not make those emails public. We don't know what was said on the teleconference because the written descriptions of the conversation in Dr. Fauci's emails are heavily redacted. Nicholas Wade writes, quote, whatever was said at the meeting, it was followed by a remarkable and almost immediate about face. By at most three days later, Anderson had executed a 180-degree turn in his views about the virus. In an email from February 4, 2020, to Peter Dajak, Anderson wrote, quote, The main crackpot theories going around at the moment relate to this virus being somehow engineered with intent, and that is demonstrably not the case. We can only wonder at what was said on that teleconference that took Christian Anderson and several other virologists from asserting that they would need to examine all the viral sequences closely to three days later, presumably after having done no such examinations, referring to assessments 
that quite recently matched his own as Crackpot. Eddie Holmes definitely has uh, some potential conflict of interest because he's been pulled into this. I mean, he's a co-author with uh, Christian Anderson of the Proximal Origins paper that was essentially commissioned by Fauci and Daszak early in 2020. This is Yuri Dagan. He is a former drug developer and currently works as a biotech entrepreneur and life extension activist. He is also a founding member of Drastic. We were talking about an academic paper he co-authored with Italian scientist Rosanna Segreto titled SARS-CoV-2's Claimed Natural Origin is Undermined by Issues with Genome Sequences of Its Relative Strains. This paper examines claims made by the authors of a different paper called A Novel Bat Coronavirus Closely Related to SARS-CoV-2 Contains Natural Insertions at the S1-S2 Cleavage Site of the Spike Protein. This second paper, which is authored by Edward Holmes and Hong Zhu, amongst others, is about specific features of a different coronavirus named RMYN02. The thesis proposed by Zhu and Eddie Holm that in that virus, RMYN02, that they found in Yunnan, there is a similar insertion to the one that we observe in SARS-CoV-2. This is about to get technical, so hang in there. Holmes and Zhu say that the insertion witnessed in SARS-CoV-2 isn't odd because we see a similar insertion in RMYNO2. But before we dive into that, let's hear Yuri explain just what an insertion is. So usually when things mutate, how they mutate is that they get these letters that code for amino acids. These letters get replaced. So it's not like something novel appears in the genome, but it's that whatever exists in the spot where this letter is, that letter is changed. So I don't know, from a C to a G, for example. But when an insertion happens, it's actually something novel gets inserted, I guess, in the genome where it kind of like you cut up the two spots in the genome between, say, you know, previously whatever was a C and the next one was an A, and you snip basically between the two and you paste some new sequence. So if it was like a CA, now you paste it, I don't know, GC, so it becomes CGCA. So the GC is an insertion. And those insertions have happen usually pretty rarely, just be by virtue of you know how the process of replication of the genome happens. Mutations that change one nucleotide to another, these are called point mutations. They happen pretty frequently. Also, there are deletions. Deletions are the opposite of insertions. When something, you know, the copying apparatus can, for example, slip a little bit and skip over some of the nucleotides when it's copying, and this will create a deletion in the copy of the genome. Usually when insertions happen, it's it's duplication of what's already in there, in the original genome that the apparatus is copying. So like what happens during copying is you have like a, like a template, strand, whatever you're trying to copy, and the copying machine just goes along this template and copies everything that's in it in the, in the new strand that it's creating. Well, sometimes the template can kind of slip backwards and you just, the copying apparatus just keeps copying again whatever it already copied, and this creates an insertion, like a duplication of something that already existed. So back to Yuri and Rosanna's breakdown of the claim made by Eddie Holmes and Hong Zhu that the insertion found in SARS-CoV-2 
should not be surprising. Basically, in SARS-CoV-2, we, we observed this insertion that has created the furin cleavage site. And in this RMYNO2 virus, Holmes and others in Jew claim that they observed the PAA, which they claim is an insertion, in the junction between S1 and S2, which they think makes it much more plausible that the insertion that we observe in SARS-CoV-2 could have had a natural origin. Basically, they're saying, look, you know, it's not so rare to see insertions in this spot. Look at this virus, look at RMYNO2. It has this PAA insertion. Well, when we actually analyze the genome of RMYNO2 and compare it to its nearest relatives, we observe that it's absolutely not an insertion. In fact, there is a deletion in that spot. The junction is shorter in RMYNO2 than its closest relatives, in contrast to, of course, SARS-CoV-2, which is longer by 12 nucleotides than any of its nearest relatives. And that's how you know it's an insertion, because when you compare it to closest relatives, you see things inserted. In RMYNO2, as claimed by Zhu and Holmes, there's no such thing. It's shorter. It's six nucleotides shorter than any of its nearest relatives. And basically, to uh, propose that it's an insertion, Zhu and others have done just a very bad job of genome alignment. I wouldn't want to say that uh, it was done in any kind of bad faith, but definitely either they're very incompetent at genome alignment or they had some kind of agenda they were trying to push, which, you know, the agenda being that, oh, it's not surprising and it's not suspicious to have SARS-CoV-2 have this insertion because look, in nature, there are other viruses with such insertions. It's still very surprising to see any kind of insertion there, let alone if insertion creating a furin cleavage site, which no one has ever observed in SARS-like viruses up until now. Back in part two of this series, we talked with Dr. Jonathan Latham about the furin cleavage site in the SARS-CoV-2 genome. What Yuri Dagan is saying is that the presence of this furin cleavage site, which plays a role in what makes SARS-CoV-2 so efficiently infectious in humans, appears in a specific location within the genome that makes it appear as if it is an insertion, which again is a rare occurrence in viral replication to begin with. And it also is not found in any other SARS-like coronaviruses. This furin cleavage site along with other components of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, had both Yuri and Rosanna Segreto interested in writing a paper about what stood out to them as interesting regarding the virus's genomic features. We published this paper in Bioessays. I think it came out in November. Yeah, we highlighted things that we were particularly concerned with, like the furin cleavage site in SARS-CoV-2, which is very unusual, very uncharacteristic of SARS-like coronaviruses. In fact, in SARS-CoV-2, this is the only SARS-like coronavirus out of the hundreds known SARS-like coronaviruses that has a furin cleavage site at all. Other coronaviruses in this clade, the sarbecoviruses, they do not have a furin cleavage site there. But not only that, the way it has been introduced to the SARS-CoV-2 genome via 12 
nucleotide long insertion. That was also very suspicious. It's not just the insertion itself, it's the codons that are used in the, in the insertion. Codons coding for arginines that are the CGG codons that are the most frequent used in, in humans, but the least frequently used in bats or in bat coronaviruses. And also receptor binding domain. I mean, we weren't the first ones to point this out. I think Nikolai Petrovsky was the first to point out that for some reason, receptor binding domain of this virus prefers human receptor, like the most. The receptor binding domain of SARS-CoV-2, like the furin cleavage site, is one of the features that you should understand to better assess the likely origin of the virus. So I asked Yuri if he could give me a layman's description of the receptor binding domain, which is found on the spike protein of the virus. The spike protein, of course, is this characteristic feature of coronaviruses that they kind of stick out of the virion. These are the spikes that are tasked with binding with a receptor. These are the things that attach to receptors on cells that the virus is trying to enter into. After they attach, the spike protein needs to be like snipped in between and activate the fusion into the cell. The place on the spike that actually connects to our receptors is called the receptor binding domain. Yuri is among the many researchers who find it notable that the receptor binding domain of SARS-CoV-2 seems to best prefer human receptors. The best binding is to the human receptor. Then comes pangolin receptor and like bat receptors are way down the line. And this is very weird if, you know, we're supposed to believe that this is a zoonotic spillover from some kind of, well, originally it's a, it's a bat virus. So it had, if it had come from bat, it should still be pretty good at binding bat AC2 receptor, but, but it isn't. So this is very suspicious. After talking about some of the more suspicious characteristics of SARS-CoV-2, I asked Yuri if he thought the Wuhan Institute of Virology would have had the building blocks necessary to come up with SARS-CoV-2. Hell yeah. I mean, it's not even building blocks. I mean, that's really not how uh, biology is done in a lab. You just take a natural virus and you can passage it in animals and animal cells and cell cultures, and it will be unrecognizable from the original strain. Like, it can accumulate hundreds or even thousands of mutations. It's not like you're building block by block. You're just taking something found in nature and you're throwing it into animals or lab cultures and just repeatedly passaging it. You know? And that'll create a very different virus which will adapt naturally to whatever you want it to adapt to. Like you put it in humanized mice, it'll adapt to human receptor. And whatever we observe with even RATG13 is highly consistent with this virus having been passaged in humanized animals, humanized mice, for example, because RATG13 actually also does not bind to bat receptors, but prefers rodent ACE2 receptors, like mice or rat ACE2 receptors, and then the next one is human. So this is really weird. Like, if, if this is a bat virus, it should really prefer a bat receptor the best, not human or, or rodent receptors. And uh, it's highly plausible that this is what SARS-CoV-2 is as well. Just, you know, a parallel strain coming from the same ancestor as RATG13, but just being passaged differently in different animals, or maybe using a little bit of genetic engineering as well. You, you splice in this little fragment of uh, the free and cleavage site. For the lab leak hypothesis, there's a million things that we can find that can conclusively prove that they had this virus in their laboratory from either, I don't know, like 
it popping up in some metagenomic data sets that they've published before the outbreak, maybe we'll narrow down and see, oh, wait, this is it. Or, you know, whistleblowers coming forward and saying, yep, you know, I've been, I know for, for a fact that this actually was something the lab was working on. Or, uh, I don't know, like uh, lab records showing that they were ordering genetic fragments for, for example, inserting the furin cleavage site. I mean, there's just so many things that we could find out. Despite the work done by members of Drastic, like the preprint finding that bt cov 4991 and RATG13 were one and the same that we mentioned in part one of this series, or the analysis of when the Wuhan Institute of Virology pulled their databases offline that we discussed in part two of this series, or any of the academic papers authored by Yuri Dagan and Rosanna Segreto concerning the suspicious characteristics of the SARS-CoV-2 genome, all of their work is still resoundingly ignored by mainstream scientists. None of the major journals will reference any paper that Drastic has published. Any of these researchers that have published papers pointing out misinformation that has appeared in The Lancet, that has appeared in Nature, that has appeared in Nature Medicine, they won't reference these papers. They pretend that this is academic literature and scientific literature that doesn't exist. What is science? Science is a bunch of rules and framework that we have created to try to get away from human error, right? I mean, that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to take human bias out of an examination of a problem, right? That's what we're trying to do through science. The problem is, is that that process is done by people. So it has endemic and built within it the problems of people. And the ones that I've encountered over and over again are oftentimes just greed and ego. Paul wanted to send this point home by making sure I was aware of another instance of how scientific journals were used to sway majority opinion away from the lab leak hypothesis. So there was another paper that came out in Emerging Microbes and Infections, which is a fairly obscure journal that also put the kibosh on the idea that this could have come from a lab. This came out in early 2020. So for a year and a half, this commentary was considered like, you know, the expert opinion of these virologists. And what you find out now in the last month is that when they were discussing the commentary, they were like, this thing could have possibly leaked from a lab. We're worried that maybe it looks like it may possibly be that it was engineered. This is what they were discussing internally, these scientists we find out now. But what came out in the commentary was very clearly that this could not have been a lab leak. The commentary Paul is referring to was titled, no credible evidence supporting claims of the laboratory engineering of SARS-CoV-2. It was published in the journal Emerging Microbes and Infections on February 26, 2020, several weeks after the Fauci-Farrar teleconference with Anderson, Holmes, and several other individuals. What information we have about the background regarding this commentary in Emerging Microbes is due to the work of the watchdog group U.S. Right to Know, and the results of their FOIA requests. They wrote this commentary up very quickly, and then it was peer-reviewed and approved within 12 hours. <laughs> I mean, that is lightning fast. Let me tell you something. The other thing is that before it actually ran, they actually had Shi Zheng Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology look at it. 
So they actually had the commentary looked at to get approval from the person that they were supposedly letting you know it's impossible that this could have come from her lab. U.S. Right to Know was able to obtain emails between the authors of the commentary. This would be scientists Shan Lulu and Linda Safe of Ohio State University, Susan Weiss of the University of Pennsylvania, Lee Shan Su, who was then with the University of North Carolina, as well as Shan Lu of the University of Massachusetts, who also happens to be an editor for Emerging Microbes and Infections. The commentary that got published argued that, in all likelihood, the virus originated, quote, in nature between a bat covey and another coronavirus in an intermediate animal host. The commentary's authors stated that, quote, there is currently no credible evidence to support the claim that SARS-CoV-2 originated from a laboratory-engineered covey. They went on to call the idea that SARS-CoV-2 came from a lab, quote, speculation, rumor, and conspiracy theory. However, according to their own internal correspondence, while drafting the commentary, one author wrote to another, quote, we cannot rule out the possibility that it comes from a bat virus leaked out of a lab. According to U.S. Right to Know, the emails they obtained also show that at the request of the authors of the Emerging Microbes and Infections commentary, Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina and Shi Zheng Li of the Wuhan Institute of Virology were asked to review the commentary before it was published. And further, some of their comments were included in revisions. If you recall, we discussed in part two of this series how doctors Barrick and Shi have been collaborators in coronavirus research, including and conducting gain-of-function experiments on SARS-like coronaviruses. I sort of compared it to if the government said, you know what, we're going to do a special investigation of Trump to see if he actually has dodged taxes. And what we're going to do is we're going to hire Rudolph Giuliani to lead this because he's Trump's personal lawyer. And who knows more about Trump and his taxes than his own lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani. Any moron can look at this and be like, no, you can't do this. This is a conflict of interest. But again, this gets back to that same problem with people in the science community. They can see conflicts very easily in other people who aren't them. They engage in seedy behavior that if they saw it in politicians or in police officers or in Wall Street bankers, they would find appalling. But the same behavior, they don't find appalling within their own group. Looking at the mystery of where SARS-CoV-2 came from, it is easy to see elements such as the curious placement of the furin cleavage site in the virus's genome or the affinity of its receptor binding domain for human ACE2 receptors as potential evidence of a lab origin. It then may seem like a natural leap to suggest that we need brilliant microbiologists and virologists to solve the puzzle once and for all. Paul Thacker, for one, doesn't really agree. It's not a science question. That's a complete misnomer. Tobacco was one of the biggest scientific conspiracies in the history of the United States. Who figured it out? Was it scientists? No, it was the lawyers. The only scientists involved in helping to uncover the corruption and the disinformation in tobacco was a small group led by Stan Glantz. Science did not uncover the conspiracy of tobacco. Science was complicit in the conspiracy of tobacco. And there's a broader context to this, which is 
anyone involved in this type of research where you're being paid to go out and collect these viruses that you think might cause a pandemic and then go back and study them and then do various techniques that would increase either their transmissibility or their lethality to sort of try and predict like, okay, how might this virus in the future change become more deadly to humans? If you're doing that kind of research and then it comes out that that kind of research actually caused the pandemic, I mean, you don't want anyone to know that that's how it happened because it's not just if it happened in your lab, if it happened in any lab that this was going on, that turns off the spigots of finances that go into funding this type of research. So every researcher in this field has a financial interest in diverting attention away from the fact that the research which is trying to stop a pandemic from happening may have actually caused a pandemic. Paul points out that so many scientists working in the field have a conflict of interest when it comes to investigating the origins of SARS-CoV-2. But what about scientists who aren't working in the field, or at least not in the conventional sense? Join us for part five of Origins, Birth of a Pandemic. Origins was written, reported, and edited by me, John Duffy. Our producer was Ray Novoshelsky. Field audio recording by Kristen Turo. Original score by Zachary Walter. Origins is made without sponsors and is paid for by listeners like you. If you can, please make a donation to our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash double asterisk media or simply donate via cash app at DA Media 2021. Also, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and share and suggest it to friends who you think would find it interesting. Thank you for listening.